Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlocked, giving you all the week's sports news from across the world uh, with Tarek Panja, who was last week in Brazil, but is now back in England. Martin Ziegler from The Times is also in England. But myself, Rob Harris from Sky News, currently out in Qatar. Yeah, Rob, uh, you've been making waves from over there. There was a keen to hear what you what you uh, what you found, but I was um, particularly interested in that interview you did with Nasser Al Qatar, the man organising the World Cup. Yeah, he's obviously someone that uh, we've encountered for what a dozen years, haven't we? Yeah. Are covering the bid and then into the tournament delivery itself, and obviously we're very much in that sort of final phase now, and it's interesting what you use that interview for and largely we were talking about some of the ongoing issues like the worker compensation fund the demands from the european fa's england and wales in particular for actually greater compensation for workers also those concerns although slightly vaguely expressed about lgbt rights from the players who are wearing those one love rainbow armbands but you know, one of the things that's striking is perhaps it's quite unusual at times to hear from the qatar world cup leadership because they haven't been sort of constantly vocal as often we get sick of World Cup organisers speaking in the build up to other tournaments that constantly uh, do we? Yeah that, that's been interesting weirdly for me at least um, they were speaking a lot more at the start of this process when the World Cup still had to be played in Russia for example um, and and generally in the, in the first half of this uh, 10 year build up to, to the World Cup um, and then as we've got nearer, as you said, they've kind of disappeared. And this is the moment we really need to hear from them, especially the supporters, I guess. What is the experience going to be like in Qatar? Is the accommodation going to be ready? Um, all, and on and on and on. The interesting thing, I think, about Nasser Al-Qatar, who, who is, you spoke to, Rob, um, did a good interview with, I would say, is um, he seems to be sort of being put out there by the Qatar Organising Committee to be the sort of provide sort of forceful rebuttals to various things that you know you know pressures that are coming on from um football teams international teams i mean he did something with um carve solicor from sky sports news and he around the time of the draw so it 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 does seem as though they're, they're they're sort of he's being used as a someone to sort of make make a sort of strong points um, in their favour, rather than the sort of more diplomatic approach that they've taken. Rob, on the ground there, what does it look like um, a month before the World Cup? Well, it's fairly quiet at the moment. It's often hard around Doha itself to get a sense of busyness, although the rush hour isn't as bad. The traffic seems to be alleviated, which perhaps suggests the roads are now starting to be completed. People are going onto the metro. You see some skyscrapers draped in pictures of players, but there isn't like a flood of merchandise in places in the sort of the cafes the bars the hotels that i've been in you're not sort of seeing world cup branding everywhere or wall charts it's a lot more restrained i would say than perhaps we might see elsewhere although of course there is still more than 30 days to go so time for all that to sort of take hold for the flags to maybe go on the cars etc yeah and well it also is speaks the unique nature of qatar population of about what just over two million and um, about 350,000 of them are, are local Qataris. Everyone else is, is there pretty much to work and, and, and be based in Qatar, either in the service sector or in the, in the construction sector building this country. And I, I suppose in terms of World Cup fever, especially among the, the, the people, the majority, I suppose, on low cost wages, they're not going to experience much of the World Cup, are they? Well, that's the thing. And even when I was outside Lucille Stadium, there were still 
workers digging, completing sort of finishing touches more to the landscaping than anything else. Uh, the stadium itself seems ready. It hosted a game recently. And you are wondering, are they going to get access to these games? Obviously, they did announce that low price category, but still, it's a pretty expensive for anyone locally to be able to get into matches. So, do you, From that, Rob, do you get the sense that the World Cup experience or we, we this this country that's been built, we're not going to know anything about what a World Cup there is going to be like almost until the day before when, when fans start arriving. As you, like you were saying, it's, it's 30 days. It's still 30 days out. Um, in, in a sense, a long time, but in a sense, not a long time. Um, and we really don't know what we're going to expect there. Is it, is it going to be able to fit all these people in, for example? Because right now, no one's there. Yeah, and there still seems to be some accommodation available that isn't that unreasonably priced. It's just the communication in part that perhaps the perception has grown, the fact that there is no accommodation or it's sort of hard to come by. And, you know, they haven't been wheeling out the World Cup ambassadors that they pay so lavishly to talk about things that would be practical for the fans to understand, really, about what are the last things to know before the tournament? What sort of tickets are still available? Yeah, I think part of the problem, though, has been... Um perhaps out of the Qataris' hands and more in, in FIFA's court, they block-booked a whole host of hotels, thousands of thousands of rooms for for, for their needs. So for the for the tournament organisers and the, um, the the fans, uh, sorry, the players, sponsors, etc., the FIFA, the FIFA delegations. And they were only released uh, very recently. And I suppose that's where this this new capacity might come from. And and wasn't available before because I've heard anecdotally from from people from all over the world really that they've got tickets but they can't afford to 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 get there or that when they get, went on the accommodation website nothing was available at the time. So there's probably a few people who have given up on the tickets they've got and aren't going to go. Yeah, and you really think the sort of Qatari experience for many will be defined by the sort of coming weeks. How many will be coming back to the country? How many will sort of switch off? So this is the moment to sort of shape perceptions if they want to really give a sort of different image of things. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been a sort of flood of messaging exactly from, from Qatar. And this is, and it's hard to imagine sort of here at the moment, just this is going to be the centre of the world's attention in a few weeks. So many hundreds of thousands of fans will be here. And it's the thing that sort of has been so problematic for football for so long is suddenly effectively going to become a reality. So another bit of news guys um, which have related to Qatar this week which I thought was quite interesting was the American broadcaster Fox saying it's going to avoid coverage of the uh, controversial treatment of migrant workers um, because it's uh, all they're interested in is, is covering what happens on the field of play um, and they said they didn't address criticism of Russia's government during the 2018 tournament. Um, and they, the executive producer of their coverage said if it's uh, if it's not actually related to the story of the tournament, there's, there's plenty of other outlets out there who are going to cover it. Um, so a, an interesting approach and certainly up front, that's for sure. Do, do you get the sense that they just want it done? Like they're exhausted by all of this as well? I mean... You know, it's 12, 12 years build up to this, all the criticism, all the all the all the focus. Um, it's a long time for anyone to be on one project. Do you get the sense that the people kind of at the top of this are are a little bit exhausted themselves by it, even before it's begun? They certainly seem exhausted by some of the criticism, but then what could they expect? They've had to change things like the labour laws, which means it's been justifiable that sort of criticism and that pressure. And now they sort of celebrate how 
they're the sort of leaders in the region with the labor reforms that they've put in place but that was all because of the criticism and also the fact that we still have you know the unanswered allegations of wrongdoing particularly from u.s prosecutors who have alleged within cases about just how qatar did buy this world cup and that's why you do tend to get tweets from the supreme committee the responses reference things like worker deaths and corruption don't they yeah and the, the thing with that again on just on two of those things both of those separately the worker deaths thing that they, they haven't really been clear as to how people have died and that is a stain on this world cup given that you know nothing's nothing's worth more than a, than a human life and they still don't really tell anyone how many people have died and under what circumstances um what the total is rob while you've been there did you did you get an idea have you got a figure are we still groping around for this yeah i think that's the thing really to sort of emphasize within all this that the reason that there are estimates is because there aren't investigations carried out into every death so there are a lot of unexplained reasons why someone dies of respiratory conditions you know in their 30s for instance and how that does happen so often and and you know why workers are dying is the heat a cause for it uh, while of course the Qataris say they're limited to a few deaths on World Cup sites themselves due to work-related conditions. Yeah exactly and the thing is that 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 will cast a pull over this tournament over FIFA um, not just for this month-long World Cup but for, for years to come this idea that the, the World Cup has been built on 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 the backs of however x number of people who've died building it and also on the back of arguably massive corruption right because those allegations still um don't seem to go away we were in the room on december the 2nd when set blatter himself uh, since banned from football opened open that envelope and, and the name qatar came out obviously no one's been prosecuted directly for for, for the vote but the people involved those exco members from fifa um the majority of them have been accused of some form of corruption or wrongdoing um in the, in the aftermath of this some even have been jailed uh, related to to other football corruption, um, and, and the Qataris obviously they they'll keep denying it. But Rob, it's hard to but it's hard to look past the fact that Qatar, among the bidders for that tournament in 2022, seemed the most outlandish, uh, almost ridiculous place to go when they were bidding for a summer World Cup in June and July. Yeah, and we've heard those denials repeatedly and we've been asking for so many years. We're not expecting a sudden confession at this point uh, in the proceedings as we approach the World Cup, but it is something that will be forever associated with Qatar and the whole bidding process because actually, you know, there was a culture of it at the time, wasn't there, approaching 2010 in the vote where actually FIFA sort of allowed some of it to continue in plain sight so you can understand why various sort of backroom deals from various bids w- would take place. Absolutely, of course. Um, another Qatari at the time, Mohammed bin Hammam, who was the um, president of Asian football. A year later, a year after that vote, was um, was caught in a scandal in which envelopes stuffed with forty thousand dollars apiece were being handed out to Caribbean voters ahead of his challenge to set Blatter in twenty eleven. So you talk about culture around FIFA. That that was that was what we we were talking about. The other thing I thought was a bit strange this week was the the quotes from from the Emir of Qatar, basically praising Putin and saying, "Thank you for your help in in preparing for the World Cup." Because, I mean, the, most of the rest of the world, not everybody, but I mean, most of the rest of the world thinks Russia has been doing terrible things in Ukraine, and if you look at the sort of voting record on on the, on the United Nations. 
a lot, you know, only five countries voted against against the motion about um, uh, about Ukraine, um, and they, they were obviously Russia and and their allies. Um, so, for Qatar to sort of position themselves as being um, sort of supportive of Russia or, or thanking Russia, I thought was a bit strange too. Uh, Rob, while you've been there, just let me ask you: We all know that um, Qatar has a famous resident now, at least. For the last few months, if not a bit longer, did you bump into a certain G Infantino at all in your travels? Unfortunately, a pass didn't cross. I believe he left town just as I was arriving. Maybe he got uh, early warning of my impending arrival. Spooked, yeah, Rob. Rob and his microphones about to get him. But he was heading to South America for a bit of a boost from a confederation that uh, has been one of his fiercest critics in recent times, after previously being his arch supporters. Yeah, again, football politics writ large. Yeah, I was um, surprised and not surprised here. Comnebol, the South American Football Confederation, 10 members, big teams there like Argentina and Brazil, um, gave their backing, unanimous backing, to Gianni Infantino. He visited Comnebol, I think, in, in Luque in Paraguay, where they're, where they're headquartered. But the, the, you know what? The, the weird thing here is, for months, the, the, the Comnebol... Uh, folks and people within that organisation have been sort of um, lobbying quietly and, and presenting their fury privately about the fact that there is pressure on on national FAs to support Gianni Infantino. For example, um, text messages from his inner circle to to confederation leaders asking them to sign this this letter of support. There's like a pro forma letter we've seen in Africa, we've seen in South America. Sure, it's in Asia as well, um, saying, you know, me, name the country, name the president, give my support to Gianni Infantino for, for a run at the presidency. And and people at Comrable that I'd spoken to not that long ago were furious about this. So, And here they are, you know, um, backslaps all around supporting their candidate, Gianni Infantino. What do you make of that? Yeah, ultimately, they just sort of don't bother putting up a rival candidate or they know that they would lose. So actually, they can't try to challenge Infantino's presidency. And suddenly we're left sort of trying to forget that they're sending all these furious letters over biennial cups and things like that um, just a year ago. And it was really heated and so much so that Common Ball opened this joint office with UEFA in London. Yeah, the, the, the sabre rattling in, in, um, in, in real form there, that building. We still don't know if anyone actually works there, do we, Rob? Have they, have they, have they got any chairs or desks there? You visited at one point, I believe. Yeah, never heard anything more about the office since uh, B&F. It's opening uh, back in April, actually having come from Qatar when we've been at the World Cup draw in the, the previous days. Well, there has been another draw taking place far more recently. And Martin, you were out in Frankfurt for the Euro 2024 qualifying draw and the UEFA meetings that were taking place on the sidelines. Yeah, so there was a, the day before the draw in Frankfurt that there was a meeting of all the UEFA national associations, the presidents and the, the general secretaries or chief executives. Um, and they, I think the sort of main thing on the on, on the agenda for them is is trying to sort of drum up more interest in European qualifiers. Um, it's fair to say that it was a struggle for the, to get lucrative TV rights for the Euro twenty twenty four qualifiers, even for the big countries. Um, that trying to match what's what what the uh, the deals were previously, it, it wasn't possible really. And I think the, the the big issue was a lot of these matches just aren't interesting. Um, there's too many of them. It's all, almost like a procession for the bigger nations. So what they've 
decided to do, although it needs to be rubber stamped, is to have smaller qualifying groups. So we, we instead of groups of five and six, we were going to have groups of four or five. Most of them will be groups of four. Um, fewer qualifying games. You, you still have the opportunity for big countries to play small countries, but not as many. And, and more Nations League games, so pitting the bigger countries against each other um, and perhaps more knockout Nations League games, which might drive up the interest there too. Well, they, they also decided not to expand the tournament um, to 32 teams from 24, just because that would make the qualifying competition meaningless and even even less attractive to, to TV companies. So I think they're, they're sort of doing these tweaks, but it is interesting that they're not, you know they they realise, despite the fact they've expanded the Champions League, um, that bigger is not always better. The members there did also give their backing for Alexander Sheffrin to continue as UEFA president, a term that began in 2016 after Michel Platini was banned. Will now last, it would seem, until 2027 with another four-year term. From 2023, he's unopposed, and that would mean that Sheffrin actually serves longer than Platini uh, as the boss of European football. Yeah, he told the national associations that he's going to run for re-election again um, in March or April. I can't remember which one it is. but um, So we will have both Johnny Infantino re-election as FIFA president in March and then a few weeks later, Sheffrin at UEFA. So um, I think it'll be a, it'll be a sort of... Elected by acclaim or whatever they say, applause um, for, for both of those. And it, it was, he didn't make a big song and dance about it. There was no sort of dramatic announcement, no sort of press conference. It was just a sort of told the national associations that's what, what is going to happen. And they put a press, press release out about it and that was it. Always ideal to try and hear from them. Maybe things might go a bit quieter. They have those post-2024 Champions League reforms in place for the men's competition which really do change things but the focus there was on Euros qualifying and what was it like around the sidelines of the draw? Actually I thought the most interesting part of the draw uh, and speaking to people afterwards was was um, a sort of quite a, a lengthy chat with the head coach of Ukraine Alexander Petrikov who um, interesting guy his team up against Italy and England um, and as well as others, of course, in the, in the group. And just, um, he was very, very, very strong, you know, how they're very anti-Russia, obviously, saying there's no way that they uh, they should be allowed to take part when they're still sort of bombing and, and killing people in Ukraine. And um, also just saying he hopes that peace can break out and... Even by 2024, they could play some of their qualifying matches back in Kiev or Kiev or Lviv or even Kharkiv, he said. Um, so obviously things will need to change dramatically uh, for that to happen. But um, yeah, he was um, quite, quite a powerful figure. Still an issue for UEFA and FIFA to resolve the fact Russia remains a member of both organisations through its FAs, even though the teams are suspended. And of course, having to deal with the issues over where Ukrainian teams do play in the coming months and years as this war does continue, launched by Russia on Ukraine. Well, moving away from the world of football and a lot of turmoil in rugby union in England, uh, something you've been covering this week, Martin. 
Yeah, the it's, rugby union is lurching from, from one crisis to another at the moment. Um, there's all the issues around head injuries and legal actions. Then we had Worcester going to liquidation, and now it looks like Wasps um, owe a lot of money, two, $2 million in unpaid taxes to HMRC, and they've got $35 million loan outstanding to bondholders, which they, they took out to buy the stadium eight years ago. Um, and they, uh, yeah, they basically look like they're, um, they're going to go into administration soon, days away from it. Uh, I mean, and that is two out of the 12 premiership teams. So I think that the finances just aren't working there. And I, I think that, I don't know what they're going to do, but I think the authorities need to do something dramatic to, because there's other clubs also have financial issues. So it's, um, they're clearly spending too much uh, compared to their income. Um, and the, the, the sort of um, investment by CVC Capital Partners a, a few years ago doesn't seem to have helped anything at all. Deep issues there for Rugby Union to resolve in England. Well, that about brings an end to this slightly shorter version of Sport Unlocked from our travels uh, all around. As ever, if you've got any feedback, you can message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And always grateful if you can hit subscribe. But for now, thank you for listening. 